it went straight down the middle. Then it started to So just again for our listeners, a, a quick recap. Uh, Nick Price won more PGA Tour events in the 1990s, 15 than anyone. He was the PGA Player of the Year in 93 and 94, leading money winner those same years, Varden Trophy winner in 1993 and 1997, uh, winner of three majors, one player's championship. And uh, Bruce, I don't know about you, but my recollection, Nick Price, I love to watch him hit the ball, play golf back in the early 90s. I, I just There was nobody out there that was any better. Well, he's, uh, I, can, I can assure you that there are many, many people that have been in the golf business that say that, you know, of all of the players that played the game, and he, he made a reference uh, a little while ago to DiVincenzo being on his left side and Trevino on his right uh, over in Europe, but uh, Nick would, Nick would uh, his name would be mentioned very quickly if you went, if you started to go down names of the players that struck the ball as solidly. And, you know, you can start with Hogan and Trevino and then pretty soon you're going to get to Nick Price's name. I can assure you of that. Thank you. <laughs> I remember Hobday, you know, I got, I got to tell you a story because you, you knew, you know, you knew Hobday, who was a great friend of mine. Terrific guy. And I, I'll just tell you a quick story. I traveled with him in 1979 in Europe. And so my second year, Simon was 17 years old and I was, so he uh, it was really an experience for me, you know, and, and he had a, a reputation for being a party guy, drinking a lot of beer and staying out late, but he, he never really was, uh, he never did that. He, he, he wasn't a big drinker. He would sip, you know, he would sit at a bar for four hours, but he'd drink like three beers. He would sip, yeah. you know, unless it was Sunday and there was no tournament or whatever, but he was a sipper, but uh, he couldn't sleep the poor guy. That's why he was always so nervous. You know, he'd wake up, I guess it was because he was a farmer before he became a pro golfer, but he'd wake up at like, you know, four in the morning and he was ready to go. And uh, anyway, uh, he'd smoke a pack of cigarettes before I woke up in the room next to him, you know, and I mean, it was just, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> cut a long story short, I get back home and, uh, you know, my buddies just can't believe I've traveled with Hobday because he's a legend at home. Yeah. And they yeah. said, Nick, you didn't travel with Hobday. I said, yeah, I did. I traveled with a guy for, you know, three and a half months in Europe. And they said, what was it like? I said, well, and then I told the thing, you know, he's not a, much of a drinker and, you know, he, whatever. I said, but I did learn one thing really important from, you know, traveling with him. And I said, what's that? I said, if I'm ever going to be a professional golfer, I have to do everything totally opposite to him. <laughs> so, and Simon got a big kick out of that story as well, because he was a terrible dresser, you know, always looked, un he looked like an unmade bed the whole time, you know, but he had a beautiful golf swing and he was a, a great ball striker. And I remember when I was about 14, I was, I went to the practice uh, range tee and he was hitting balls there getting ready to go to Europe. And I said, Mr. Hobday, can I, can I watch you hit balls? And he pointed, he said, sit down there. And he says, and if you've got any questions, you can ask me, you know, so he's hitting these five irons. And I mean, just flushing them and the caddy was shagging balls, was picking them up all around the bag. And I said, at the end of it, I said, Mr. Hobday, how do you become a, a, a better ball striker? How do you become a great ball striker? So he says, well, uh, one thing I learned, he says, when I was young, he says, and he pointed to the middle of the club face, which there was a, you know, you know a, the, chrome, the chrome had been worn off. He right. says, if you hit it out of there more than the guy you're playing against, 
eventually you'll beat him. And so <laughs> that was great, you know. So there was always that was, I guess, one of the uh, things that impressed me the most. So the strike was something that was important to me. Yeah, well, you you certainly proved that, my friend, Nick. What was the adjustment like uh, for you coming to America? Was it difficult or or not not too bad? No, not at all. Um, I just I think after being in Europe, I love the space of America. Uh, you know, the, I love the golf courses. Uh, generally, the courses were in, were in such great shape here on 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 the PGA Tour. Uh, you know, the range facilities, the weather. Um, the, it, it was just so much easier to travel than Europe. And I, I really had some great times in Europe, so I don't want to badmouth Europe, but it was just totally different. I uh, made great friends in Europe, um, and I learned an awful lot by playing over there. Um, but my game was definitely more suited to warmer uh, climates. And I think if you look at my record, you'll see that I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a very high percentage of tournaments I won in summer. Um, I wasn't a very good, I wasn't a good mudder. You know, I didn't like the wet. Uh, I loved the wind, but, uh, preferred it if it was warm, not cold. Um, so, uh, you know, this was just a great place for me to come. And, uh, uh, it, it, I, I just felt so comfortable here. And then I made friends quickly over here. Um, you know, based myself here in Florida and have been here ever since. I mean, uh, what am I coming up? Uh, 38 years now in Florida. Uh, who who were some of your best buddies uh, on the tour? Well, Hal Sutton and I, you know, we'd known each other, but he and I became really good friends in 83. I traveled a lot with him. Um, you know, Mark McNulty was over here. Then we traveled together, one of my, another one of my countrymen. Um, uh, let's see, there was uh, Gavin Levinson was playing over here. Then Dennis Watson was playing. So, you know, we had some good, some good friends. Uh, uh, then, you know, Payne Stewart, I became good friends with Payne. There was the Orlando connection. I lived in Orlando for that time, um, from 82 through to like the 94, but before we came down here to Florida, to, uh, uh, Jupiter. Um, uh, and so there was, you know, a lot of guys, Baker Finch, Wayne Grady, um, uh, just to name a few. Um, but my sort of, Class, if you want to say all well, the guys, was John Cook, Marco Mira. Uh, um, we were all sort of the same age, uh, and uh, you know, it was it, there was a really good period there for sort of the '57 models, as I called the guys who were born in '57, '58. Sluman, Jeff Sluman became a, and I still very good friend. Jay Haas, still one of my favorite people. Um, played a lot of golf with Jay. So, um, you know, just guys, uh, I don't know there were so many really, really nice guys on the tour or, you know, absolute characters and guys, all independent contractors who we were all out there chasing the same dream. Um, and you know, you, you, you never, if a guy worked hard and got rewards, you, you never, ever, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you never 
decried him that, you know, it was something that you, you, but uh, you know, there were lots of guys who didn't work hard, who had success, but you knew that was going to be short winded. It wasn't going to be something that was going to last a long time because you, you had to dig it out the earth. You had to dig it out the ground in this game or, those will certainly in our generation we had to you jump right out of the box and win the world series of golf at firestone by four over a guy named nicholas (laughs) that was just uh another one of those weeks and i you know i guess that was just as important to me that win as that win in san diego in 1974 as a junior it was a milestone in my career because i got a 10-year exemption and a 10-year exemption on the pga tour is like i don't know what you can say You, you 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 cannot describe how much it means to a guy who comes from another country and can now City sites for the next ten years. Pick and choose wherever you want. Pick to and go. choose where you want to play, and and you know I knew that the whole week, but I was uh, I was just so focused. I'd found this swing key that it just I was flushing it, and I hit the ball so well throughout the week. Um, it didn't have a whole lot of sleep that whole week, and I can remember saying to one of my buddies afterwards. I said, I don't know how many tournaments Jack Nicholas has won, but I don't know. If, or he'd won 70 times, I think it was, or 60 or whatever many times. And I said to myself, I said to my buddy, I said, there's no way I can do that another 70 times because I <laughs> and not have sleep. I was exhausted at the end of the week, you know. Uh, but uh, I managed to pull it off. And, uh, you know, Jack was great. I mean, he came up to me on the 18th green. And, of course, I'm on cloud nine, adrenaline's flowing through my body and he was just so nice to me he just said you know you played great and you know good luck with your career you know of that last round i actually played with uh uh hale irwin and isao aoki so those were two guys who you know were, were great players and were having great years then so uh it, it was pretty harrowing <laughs> Bruce, uh, what would a 10-year exemption have done for you early in your career? Would that have kept you off the Greyhound buses? Uh, yeah, I think so, probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know, we've often talked about how, how much the game has changed. You know, we just watched, uh, and we don't do this very often, talk about something that just happened a few days ago, but, you know, $15 million uh, <laughs> last week. My first tournament I won, I won 3000 <laughs> <laughs> a little different. <laughs> but it, but a 10-year exemption, as you said, Nick, had to do a lot for your confidence too, right? It took a lot of pressure off. Uh, you're able to schedule where back in the day it was hard, especially when uh, when you were just uh, an exempt uh, number was 60, which might have predated you a little bit on the tour, but a little different. Yeah, Europe, when I played in Europe, they had Monday qualifying. And uh, so – that first year here in America, they had the all exam tour. Gary McCord's idea and the tour put it into practice that year. So, um, you know, getting finishing in the top 125 was was obviously the most important thing. But, you know, I at, at up until then, and and I, my career, I'd been very streaky. When I my timing was on, and you know, when I had rhythm, I was streaky, and that's what if you look at my track record up until then, and I hated that because I could go and play two weeks in a row and play great, and then miss four cuts in a row, um, and it, it it just doesn't do much for your confidence. 
So when I won the World Series, it gave me the opportunity to really work hard on my swing, on my game, under tournament conditions, which are not many people had that luxury. You know, they, if I was working on something with my swing, you know, it's one thing to do it on the range. It's another thing to take it to the course and try it. Uh, and, and I did that. And, and that period, you know, I, I sort of had sporadic success. Again, I was uh, going through these periods where I'd time the ball well and I'd, uh, I'd do well and then it would go. And then, but they were these, I was starting to play and hit the ball better and more solid, more frequently as those years progressed. And then, you know, 88, uh, 87, 88, uh, I'd had limited success again. My first after that win at uh, the World Series, but you know, I shot. I finished third or fourth in the PGA at uh, uh, Cherry Hills in '85. I played with uh, Hubert and um, and Trevino the last round. Uh, you know, shot 63 at Augusta in, in '86. And '86, I played well at the PGA again. Um, you know, there was all these little things that were going on, and I was showing, but not getting through. And you know, lots of top ten finishes and, and top four, five finishes on the PGA Tour. And then '88, things really changed. Um, you know, I, I started hitting the ball so so much more consistently, and I felt that of a caliber where I could win. And uh, the British Open in '88. Uh, Sevi and I went head to head at Lytham and uh, he, he, his short game was head and shoulders better than mine. And that's why he won. And I can remember driving back, you know, with my wife back to London the next day. And I said to her, you know, you're right because she'd been telling me for a while now, you've got to work on your short game, your short game. Yeah. All these other guys are making putts and you hitting it inside them and whatever. And I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was really the, 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 the calling card for me is, uh, Nick, go and work on your short game. So I really started working hard on my short game. And, you know, two years later, it started paying dividends. Uh, let's let's continue ticking through some of your regular C, uh, regular PGA Tour wins. Uh, you won the nineteen ninety one GTE Byron Nelson Classic at the TPC at Las Colinas by one over Craig Stadler. <laughs> and again, that was that was the first win with for Squeaky and I. There were a lot of significant things happened that week, and I played really well, tee to green, the first three days, and then on Sunday I started miscuing it. Um, and my short game was just, I mean, uh, it couldn't have been any better. When I missed a green, I got it up and down. If I needed to make an eight footer, I made it for par. You know, if I hit in a bunker, I got it up and down and I ended up winning. And on a scale of one to 10, my long game was probably a six where I was used to a Hmm. seven and a half or an eight, you know, T to green. But my short game was a nine, almost a 10 that day. And suddenly it was this relief came over me where I said, well, I don't have to hit the ball fantastically well and perfectly to win, which, you know, you have the stigma in your brain about, you know, being a ball striker and whatever. But so that was really an eye opener for me. That was a, and it had been, you know, on the U S tour eight years. So I'd almost used up that 
10-year exemption. Yeah. Um, now, whether that was, you know, I didn't even think about my exemption running out because I was playing so well then that I was finishing in the top 125 without any problem. But, um, you know, it was starting to bug me that I wasn't winning. I think 89, 88, 89, I think I had something like, uh, I don't know, eight or ten top three finishes. But I just – it was always someone was doing something to me. You know, one not chip in and another guy would hold a long putt or, you know, nearly hold an iron shot on the last hole to beat me by a shot. But, uh, you know, that was that was a really great win for me, that Byron Nelson. And Byron, let me tell you, I, I still to this day – one of my most favorite people I ever got to meet in my life. And I got to spend a lot of time with Byron from there, not probably as much as Tom Watson did, but um, he he was just the absolute epitome of a gentleman, human, uh, you know, just humble um, and just as the nicest person you could ever wish to be with. And I learned an awful lot from him. I really did, you know, just watching him interact with people and, uh, and just listening to him. He was, uh, he was a, 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 a real sage. Bruce, you, you were able to play with Hogan a lot. Did you overlap much with Byron? No, I didn't. I, no, unfortunately Byron had finished playing when, uh, when I was, uh, when when I spent a lot of time with Hogan there, uh, you know, playing a lot of practice rounds for about seven years from sixty two to sixty nine. But uh, I, I agree with what Nick just said about Byron Nelson. He was a really class act and one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. And fortunately for me, Nick, I I won the, the Byron Nelson tournament too. So and in those days, we used to have a champions dinner. Mm. Uh, at the Byron Nelson, and and of course Byron was always at the Champions Dinner as the you know, as the uh, the, the head guy, and uh, you know just a, just like you said, he was a just a fine fine gentleman. Nick, as as you talked about short game, as you found your short game sharpening up, did it did it cause you to to uh, be more aggressive or take different lines coming into greens because you knew if you missed a little bit, you could get it up and down. Well, the one thing that helped me an awful lot was um, I wasn't a creative uh, wedge player. I sort of would be one dimensional, uh, you know, obviously you would open up that we had, I was thinking I had a 56 degree was Max Mandelhoff that I had. And, you know, but compared to a guy like Seve or Crenshaw or, or, you know, Azinger, who were all fantastic with the 56 degree wedge. And I learned a lot from Seve and I would always go and watch when he was in the bunker or Crenshaw when he was hitting pitches and that. But I got the 60 degree wedge which really helped me an awful lot. I think a lot of guys, it helped a lot of guys who may not have been strong around the green chippers and pitches. Um, Mm. And then, of course, we had the square grooves, which meant you could really spin the ball a lot more out of the rough. So short-siding yourself back in those days wasn't as severe as it was maybe in the 60s and 70s because we had these this equipment really helped us a lot. And that helped me. There was no doubt. Um, I think the, I put the 60 in um, right the middle of 92 or around about 92 sometime. So, uh, you know, the PGA in 92 and then the World uh, – sorry, the uh, Players' Championship in early 93 – 
those were all courses where you really needed a, 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 a very sharp short game. And I think that helped me an awful lot. You know, that gave me more shot variety. Uh, and, uh, you know, now you've got 64 degree wedges, so, you know, and that's. I wouldn't know how to use one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would not know how to use one. I wouldn't one. know either. <laughs> boy, oh boy. You lay it open and it's 90 degrees, right? Uh, yeah. So you won the Canadian Open in 1991. It was another victory uh, at Glen Abbey, which uh, that, that tournament has been conducted there for a long, long time by one over David Edwards. Your recollections of that event? Uh, you know, just another great a tee to green week. I played uh, tee to green. I played really well that week. I, I hit a lot of greens. Uh, my putting was starting to really turn around. Uh, and I started feeling more and more comfortable under pressure. Uh, and, and, you know, back nine at Glen Abbey is a real test of ball striking. And, uh, you know, I played a really solid back nine and, um, you know, I just felt like I was off to the races. Now I had, you know, a, a game that was capable of winning. I felt like anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, some, when you, when, when you win once, that's one thing in one year. When you win twice, you have this, I always say confidence is like an X factor. And for some people, it's a times one or times two. I think for me, when I started winning after that lean spell, the, the, the confidence was like a, a, a multiplier, five or ten multiplier. So it just, it just really sent me off and, uh, put me in a, in a position where I just felt like, you know, if I'm going to play well, I can win anyway. And so for our listeners, we are getting into the stretch of just some outstanding golf in the early 90s as we move along with regular tour wins. 1992, the HEB Texas Open. You won that one in a playoff with Steve Elkington. <laughs> Great golf course, Oak Hill in, in San Antonio. Uh, you know, just uh, I loved golf in Texas. Texas golf to me was very similar to golf in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Uh, uh, you know, Bermuda grass, grainish greens. Uh, you know, had fast fairways, a little windy. Windy for sure. You know, so it was. Uh, it was really, uh, it, it was, it was great, great fun for me to play in Texas. And, you know, not surprising. I, I think I nearly got the Texas slam. The only one I didn't win was Houston. I came in the top three there a few times, but never could never win that one. But, you know, Colonial, I won twice there and I love Colonial. I think Colonial was just a, was a ball strikers paradise. <laughs> You've got a red tartan jacket then and Bruce, yours is green. Mine was green originally. Yeah, they sent it yeah, originally. To, yeah, they <laughs> sent it to Australia, and I never got it, Nick. Oh dear! And, and then when uh, you know, many many years later, I'm at uh, the colonial dinner, and they said, "Well, where's your jacket?" I said, "Well, you know, you guys, I never got it." They said, "Well, we sent you one." I said, "Well, I never got it." So they they made me up a new one, which is nice. So. I now have I now have a champion's jacket. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to the colonial, but uh, uh, just moving on chronologically, we get into '93 now, and and uh, you win wire to wire by uh, five over longer at the Players Championship after opening with a 64. Yeah, that was certainly one of the top three 
tournaments or championship of all time for me. Uh, ball striking, uh, short game. I was uh, I was in full song then. Where I just played so well from tee to green, and I, I think the only thing that was going to beat me that week would have been, you know, myself by, you know, uh, making stupid mistakes, uh, st- you know, strategy wise on the golf course. So, um, but that last day was was it was close. And, uh, you know, at 17th and 18th hole, well, 16, 17 and 18, you know, uh, you just don't, you, you can't have enough of a lead going in there. Um, but I played them so well. And it was just uh, uh, one of, as I say, one of the top three of my all time performances because uh, I just, I felt like I, I drove the ball well. I hit my irons great. My short game was good. And, uh, you know, I, it, it was a convincing victory. Hmm. So for us mere mortals, uh, do what you can to put into words how it feels when you get into that place where you've got just what you feel to be ultimate command over your golf ball. Well, I think it's focus. You know, it's not uh, people call it a zone, um, but I, I don't think it's a zone because, you know, you've got to walk from your tee shot to your second shot and there's a lot going on and you can't really zone out as, as I understand the word zone where, you know, you're so focused, you don't see anything else, you know, you're walking and talking and, you know, you're telling jokes to your caddy or the guys you're playing with, or, you know, you're chatting about things. But when it's that 10 seconds before you hit your shot, you are totally focused on what you're trying to do. And uh, it, that's, that's all it takes is that 10 seconds to be absolutely 100% focused. And I think, you know, I'd worked with Rotella, Bob Rotella in 88 and 89. And so, you know, and then all the work that Squeak had done, then I, we had done together in, you know, getting rid of the negatives on the golf course. And all of that was starting to really, really come together. And, uh, you know, 92, the PGA, uh, and then that 93, six months later, I win the, uh, the Players' Championship. So it was, uh, that was a big, big time for me. It really was. I might also say too, uh, Nick, you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation uh, when you won the World Series, you beat Jack Nicklaus. And I, and I have said, and I think Mike's heard me say this before, uh, you could walk down the fairway with Jack, uh, you could talk about anything, yeah. and then when he was about 15 yards short of his golf ball, he just, I mean, he went, he went in what you call, you know, uh, he was in a in a little place all by himself right then, concentrated real hard on what he was trying to do. And when he after he'd hit the shot, he was you know back to Jack again. Uh, amazing, uh, his powers of concentration uh, were were just phenomenal. And you know, I learned a lot from watching him. You know about what Bob Rotella had helped me with. Uh, I was watching Jack apply it firsthand in front of us. Unfortunately, I didn't get to play a lot with Jack uh, when he was playing his best. But, you know, I played quite a few rounds with him, uh, you know, in the in the 80s. He was a, uh, he's a few years older than you, sir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's my vintage, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, we've, t- for whatever reason, we've, we've had a lot of our guests that have won at Hartford, and uh, everybody seems to have fond memories of that because they all relate how supporting a community that was to, of that golf tournament. Amazing. Uh, when the 
tournament moved. I never got to play at, at Weathersfield. Uh, the first one I played was at the TPC course. TPC. At River, uh, what's it? At Riverside, is it? Um, River, River Highlands. River Highlands. Yeah, I, River thank Highlands. you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I should know that. Um, I just, you know, got there and it was one of those courses. It was a, a TPC course, but beautiful design. I thought it was a great design, uh, rewarded ball striking, um, clear thinking. It, there were a lot of risk reward holes there. Um, but you know, I just felt comfortable on the course. It required, you know, uh, the ability to maneuver the ball both ways off the tee. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, it was the start of summer. It was June, you know, which is great. It was starting to heat up and I, I just seemed to play better in, in the heat. And, uh, you know, the, I, I, I don't know what to say. It's always horses for courses. And I just felt when I got, when I felt comfortable on a golf course and my game was in good shape, I knew I was had a chance to contend. And, yeah. uh, Hartford was one of those courses. Yeah. You almost won it the year before, didn't you? Yeah, uh, Lanny Watkins, um, I think he birdied the last hole. Uh, and, you know, it'd been that wonderful amphitheater, that last hole at uh, River Highlands. Um, and I, I think it was, we had huge galleries that, that year when Lanny won. And then the next year when I won. Um, so, uh, it was, it was, it was a wonderful, uh, it's still a great event that, and, and, you know, a good test of golf. Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me, one in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Panda and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about my albatross? We'll move on later in the summer. Uh, uh, this next tournament was about uh, uh, 20 minutes from my house. Uh, the former venue for the Western Open was about 10 minutes from my house, but you wanted a Cog Hill, uh, the Dubs Dread course. <laughs> Uh, by five over Greg Norman, and and what a great history that that tournament and that yeah. Western Golf Association has. Well, you know the Western Golf Association, just uh, all the volunteers, the guys that do so much for golf, the caddy program, program there, the uh, Evans Foundation. Um, I, I don't know. I, again, I got to uh, Butler. I really liked Butler, um, and we played there. I think until about eighty seven. 87, 88, and then or maybe a little bit later, we went over to Cog Hill and actually uh, got into a playoff at, at uh, Butler in, I think, 86 with uh, David Frost, Tom Kite, and Fred Couples. Yeah, I think Chicago, the sport fans, sports fans in Chicago were the second to none. They were amazing, and uh, they appreciated good golf. Uh, and great sport, obviously, but, uh, I again got to Cog Hill and this was a golf course where, you know, just beautiful, beautiful, uh, golf course, uh, dog leg lefts, dog leg rights. The ball was releasing in the fairways. You could hit low shots. You could, you could, you could hit, you just, you could play any kind of golf around that golf course. And again, and again, there were some key holes there 
where your strategy had to be, you know, spot on. And so, you know, I ended up winning around there a couple of times and then losing in a playoff to Robert Allenby, I think in 2000 and 2001, I think it was. Yeah. So, uh, great memories of, of Dubstreet. You remember meeting uh, Joe Jemsick? Oh, very, yes, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. He was was Mr. Amateur Golf in Chicago. Amazing man. Uh, Just absolutely loved the game, didn't he? Yep, yep, and I think his son Frank uh, is is probably uh, still uh, over the top of the place now. So, mm-hmm. uh, c- continue in '93, FedEx St. Jude at TPC Southwind by three over Jeff Maggart and Rick Fair. Yeah, this you know we're getting into the period now where uh, you know, as I said, if I played well, I felt like I could win anywhere, and um, that had zoysia grass in it on the fairways and uh, uh the ball just set up beautifully for me um bell reef where i'd won the pga 92 had zoysia we played a few courses that had zoysia grass but honestly you know, a good zoysia fairway you could you could almost hit a driver off every every lie you get so and you could spin the ball off that zoysia that was the other thing i really liked um you know uh and uh Another course that just fit my eye. It was uh, I, I I loved it, and, and you know I had a very good, uh, I think a really good track record on that course. <laughs> yeah, skipping ahead to 1994, I'll just recount the the, the regular tour victories: uh, Honda Classic by one over Craig Perry. You won the Southwestern Bell Colonial, as you mentioned at Colonial, uh, uh, and also a runner-up to Crenshaw there in 1990. But that was in a playoff with Scott Simpson. Uh, you won the Western again at Cog Hill, uh, 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 and then uh, uh, the Bell Canadian uh, Open uh, for the second time at Glen Abbey by one over Cal Kavecki. So pretty good year in '94, and we're not even talking about the majors yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any favorites among that group? Oh, I think you know all of them were very special. Um, the Honda I came from behind. I made a really great putt on 17 um, for birdie and. Uh, you know, uh, just all of those ones, you know, Scott Simpson, the playoff we had there, um, I think I birdied the, the extra, extra hole to win. Um, you know, they, they, they're all, they, they, I remember them all so well. Um, but you know, the great thing was that squeak and I were on a roll and we would get on Saturday and Sunday, you know, when now, you know, you really have to perform, um, I guess Thursday, Friday, you're sort of jogging for position. If you shoot a great round, you shoot a great round. But, you know, you, you're trying to keep yourself in the hunt Thursday, Friday. Right. But then Saturday, Sunday, now now you've got to play, you know, and, and you've got to take chances if you're behind and you've got to play cautiously but aggressively if, you, if you're ahead. Um, and this is where Squeaky and I were just clicking. Um, we'd walk onto the, we knew exactly what was going on. Uh, and we would watch the other guys. We'd listen to the other guys. We'd hear them talking negatively or put using negative connotations. You know, it's this much over the bunker and this one, the water's left, the water's in play, you know, and I, we're going squeak and I rolling our eyes, but, uh, we, we really were on a, uh, on a mission then, I suppose is the best way to put it. And, uh, you know, he just had a phenomenal uh, acumen for golf. It was, it, it was, he was very, very good. He knew when I was struggling with a line, and then he'd come and ask, "Do you want help?" Yeah. 
You know, he yeah. knew when I, yeah. if I was in between clubs, he'd say, back off, let's start again and get it right yeah. because he knew 100% commitment over every iron shot or every uh, shot that you were playing. So amazing, uh, like I say, acumen for golf and caddying. Um, so that, that was, and you know, you build on that confidence. You know, when you get on a roll, there yeah. I had been for the majority of my career, a real journeyman picking up the odd victory and suddenly I'm thrust into this, uh, winning. this winning mode and I don't want to let go. You know, and uh, it was, and I, it wasn't a blur. I remember everything. Some guys say, oh, you must, you know, remember all that stuff. I said, well, I remember so much of it. So, Nick, we'll we'll move on to 1997, and you win right down the road from where we're at here. Uh, Of course, Bruce uh, designed a wonderful course down here in in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is where I live. And just down the street at Hilton Head, uh, we got a little place called Harbor Town that, Pete Dye and Jack Nicholas developed. Uh, Arnold Palmer won the first event there as the lighthouse in the background was still under construction as he putted out that last uh, day on his victory. But you won it in 1997. Yeah, it was a it was a big week uh, and a sad week, too, for me. Um, you know, I found out that Squeak, my caddy, had got leukemia uh, back in July of 96. And he had started treatment um, at the, in, in January of 97. And, he, you know, I, uh, he, he couldn't work obviously with having going through chemo and, yeah. and he was, uh, you know, uh, trying to get a bone marrow transplant, which he did from, from his mother. Um, but anyway, Jimmy Johnson, who was a really good friend of mine, who still is a really good friend of mine, we'd met out in South Africa and he'd come out to play the South African tour. Um, and, you know, Squeak said to me when I, when he said, you know, I'd asked him, I said to him, who do you think I should get to work for me? And he said, get Jimmy to work for you because I think he'll do, you guys will do really well. And of course, we were such good friends. Um, and he'd hung up his clubs, I guess, back in about 88 and had started catting a little bit in the early 90s or mid-90s. And um, actually, he hung it up later than that. But anyway, he'd started doing a little bit of catting in the mid-90s. And so I asked him, and, and that was my first win with Jimmy on the bag. And, um, you know, it was, it was hard for me um, because Squeak wasn't on the bag. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it was, it was an emotional win. Um, but I, 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 you know, even though Jimmy and I had success, I wanted squeaky back, you know, and it wasn't, uh, three months later he passed away. Well, you must've been focused that week because it was a commanding performance by six over Brad Faxon and Jesper Parnovic. Um, Bruce, uh, Bill Rogers kind of got into your pocket a little bit there back in 81, didn't he? Uh, you, did you have to bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> he did, yes. Yeah, well, Bucky Boy was a bit hard to beat back in 81, I can tell you that. What a, what a wonderful year he had. He was, nearly, he was nearly unbeatable that year. It was amazing. I think he won like nine times globally yeah, around he, the world. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, just, yeah. You, you couldn't beat him. Yeah. I'm sure it must have been a similar feeling to what you had back during this stretch in the 90s, Nick. Uh, He certainly had that stretch for a while. It was amazing. I look back on 94, and I missed a lot of cuts in 94. 
Um, really? I did. I missed quite a few cuts, um, which was uh, uh, unusual. But what well, I think one of the things that was the biggest challenge for me was that having been a journeyman and doing the odd interview and magazine article or whatever, suddenly, you know, You're in 94, crushed. I'm just getting crushed. And I had a really tough time saying no to people. Uh, uh, you know, I had some my favorite guys out there in the, in the media, but you know, I'd always talk to anyone there. So, but it was starting to really work on me, uh, you know, through 95, 96, um, it was, it was, it was tough. And if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have said no a little bit more. I think it may have extended my career, but I was, I was burnt out. We were doing what a lot of people don't realize, you know, on the PGA tour, when you win a tournament, the next year you go back and do a media day for that tournament, right. which, you know, when you win six tournaments, you're now doing six media days and you're flying from, you know, this place All to this place, place on Monday, yeah. you know, so you finish Sunday and then Monday was a day off for us normally. Now I'm going to do a media day and, you know, you, you're back on point, you play golf with the media and then you, you know, you, you do a Q and a or a conference in the morning and then you have a dinner or a lunch. I mean, it was really hard. Um, so, but you know what, that's goes with the territory. Yeah. That's, that's your reward along with the money. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, uh, Nick, that's exactly what we heard from, from Bill Rogers. I don't know if his circumstance was different, yeah. but, uh, you know, when he got hot, he became popular. Of course, he was represented like Bruce was and Nicholas and Player and Palmer by IMG. And, uh, you know, as he said, he, he went for it, right? He sure. went to grab as much money as he could because there were a lot of opportunities around the world. And he said, I could have said no. I'm sure as a 29-year-old, it's very difficult to say no, and that's what he found out. And he, same thing, he just sort of burnt himself out. Yeah. I say, actually, I spoke to Buck about that, you know, a couple of times. Um, and it was it was sad, but, you know, he had a great he, – he although his career was cut short, um, you know, uh, if, if he if, – I think if he had managed it a little better, it probably would have – he would have extended it. But um, Yeah, yeah. What a great guy too. I mean, what a, he and Beth just, uh, they were so nice to me when I went to Japan in 1980, I think it was, or 79. And I was over there on my own and we were playing the Bridgestone tournament and, and another event. And I went out for dinner with him. They asked me to go out for dinner with him just about every night. So I got to know him really well. They're both a lovely couple, aren't they? Great people. Just a couple of other, uh, PGA regular tour wins uh, 1998 won the St. Jude in a playoff with uh, one of the one of your graduating class from the <laughs> yeah. uh, one of my good buddies Sluman yeah uh, Sluman <laughs> yeah. you know by the way speaking of that graduating class you had some real characters didn't you I mean you had Mac O'Grady <laughs> yeah. Ken Green yeah. uh, Gary McCord in that class three beauties right there uh, holy <laughs> smokes <laughs> well Mac O'Grady I'd known in Europe he came over and played in Europe. And, uh, you know, he, I mean, he, he, he looked at life through a different lens to us. Let's put it that way. He, he had some really crazy ideas, but oh, I mean, you talk about a ball striker, that guy could really crush the ball. I mean, he could, he could compress it, uh, as well as anyone. And probably a lot of people don't realize this, but he was the longest one out there in 83, yeah. 84. He was one of the longest hitters out there. Um, but you know, at the, both sides of the ball. Yeah, he could yeah. hit it. He could hit it left-handed as well. But uh, 
He wanted to. He, you know, he wanted to play with himself in the four ball tournament. He did. He did. Wait a minute. That doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound quite right. That sounds a little kinky, Bruce. He, he wanted to hit two balls off the tee, one right hand and one left hand, and play in and take the best ball. Somehow I rem- I vaguely remember that. Yeah. He he politicked hard to do that. Pretty funny. We'll finish up with the 2002 Colonial again. You had a lot of good success uh, there. Again, yeah. another commanding performance by five over Kenny Perry and, and David Toms. Yeah, uh, it was my last win on the tour, on the regular tour. Um, and what it was, I was 45 uh, then. So, I mean, I had, you know, I think to win in your mid-40s and late-40s is a real achievement on the tour. I still think, especially, you know, I turned pro at uh in 1977 so it was before my 20th birthday so i had 25 years of going at it um and you know i was very very proud of that win um because the nerves were starting to get a little bit bruce you'll know the nerves start going a little bit you know around then 40 some guys not but for some of us you can start feeling the sharpness is not there and that i suppose that's better than saying nerves but um you know, I played really well uh, that tee to green. And I hit the ball uh, where I wanted to the whole week, and my short game was strong and, uh, you know, another strong victory. And, and also Jimmy Johnson was on the bag again. So, um, you know, that was it was a significant win for me. Great scoring too that year, two two sixty seven. That's uh, yeah. that's a pretty fancy score yeah. around Colonial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys are both on the champions board down there, aren't you? Yeah, we both are. Very proud of that, you know. And uh, the other thing that was great for us, and I'm sure Bruce would agree, was we got – I signed with the Hogan Company back in 84. So I got to spend quite a bit of time with with Mr. Hogan. uh, And, you know, uh, the first time I met him, it was like going into a principal's office when you've been bad. You know, you thought, oh, my God. This guy, I've heard all these stories, and he couldn't have been nicer. He was very, very yeah. good to you know all, all of the players who were playing his equipment at the time. But uh, you know, uh, he, when we'd go for dinner, he'd have all of the players on the staff for dinner at Shady Oaks when I sat next to him three or four occasions, and uh, just a uh, he was he was such a. I, I got on really well with him. I know that there were times when he may have been crusty to other people, but I think you you got. From uh, Ben Hogan, what you gave, you know, if you were a little rude and didn't weren't quite um, well mannered in front of him, he he could be quite hard. But I think if you did all the stuff, because he was old school, you know, like Byron and and, yeah. and that. So, but uh, unfortunately, I never got to see him hit balls. He asked me on a couple of occasions, but uh, you know. Colonial, we were starting to do a lot of things for uh, at that time for at that time for charity. Like we'd go to the children's uh, hospital and visit with the kids who had cancer, and then you know do some other stuff. So I never really got the chance to see him, but uh, I wish I had. He was he was pretty <clears throat> pretty good man. I tell you, it was a. F- Fun time in my life, and uh, you 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 touched on something that I feel very very strongly about. I, he was one of the nicest men I ever met. You know, yeah. a lot of, a lot of different stories about Ben Hogan, but 
if you're a friend of his, man, you you would you, you just couldn't find a nicer person. Great values as well, you know. I mean, yes. uh, you know, uh, but anyway. One of the swings that I've, I, I mean, I idolize his swing. I think his golf swing, the power and the, the rhythm that he had, and I just absolutely, I could watch that swing, you know, time and time and time again. I just think it was a, it was just an absolute phenomenal, you know, he was a phenomenal phenom. Bruce, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if we polled our, uh, oh, I don't know, 25 or so guests that we've had on and asked them for their opinions of the great ball strikers, uh, uh, some of it's age-dependent, I recognize, because some of the younger guys didn't see Hogan as much, but uh, it seemed to be Hogan won, and perhaps uh, you'd put Lee Trevino in there number two. Yeah, that's uh, well, that would certainly be my ranking. And as I said earlier, uh, once you start going down after one and two, you're going to find Nick Price's name very, very close to the top, <laughs> I can assure you with that. Uh, I had always had great respect for him as a player. And uh, uh, Nick, you and I didn't spend a lot of time together, but uh, I sure admired uh, your ability to play this game. It was Quite I, I'm watch. interesting. You say Trevino. I mean, you know, one and two there. Uh, I think nobody could make the ball talk like Trevino could. I always say that to my <laughs> friends. You know, I mean, he just had an incredible control of the ball, and uh, I mean, it was it was it was lovely to watch. Um, and you know, even later on, I mean, I've played with him and his son and the father son with my boy. And, uh, you know, Greg, my son, I said, you've got to watch this guy swing. I mean, it looks all over the place, but you'll not see anyone hit the ball straighter than this guy. And now he's got all these hybrids, and I'm telling you, it just he just rifles them. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, and, you know, I mean, if you talk about the equipment, I think if he had had those hybrids, at Augusta, he probably would have won Augusta three or four times, you know. Um, I, th- I think you're right. Same too. for me. I was a ball, low ball striker, and I, you know, you don't have to hit the ball low at, I mean, high at Augusta, but it does help. Sure it helps. It really helps. <laughs> you need to have that ball coming in soft, not those little bullets like I had, those knockdowns. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I think if I'd had two hybrids back in my day, I think I might have been able to win at Augusta. Well, now, now Trevino's got a, a complete bag of them. I think he goes up to – I know he goes to seven hybrid, but he may even have an eight. But he's, <laughs> he's pretty, pretty remarkable with it. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word. And tell your friends, until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way.